Chapter 1. Culture Architecture 101. What is culture? Think about how you would define culture. What words come to mind? If you ask a room full of business people what culture is, you'll get many answers, such as, it's people's attitudes. It's a set of beliefs. It's the way we do things around here. It's how we interact. It's what people really think of the organization. It's a set of habits. And you know what? They're all right. But they're all answering a different question. They're answering the question, how do you notice culture? What they mention are all artifacts or evidence of culture. They all reveal the culture, but don't confuse the pointing finger with what it's showing. Consider this. Culture can be experienced regardless of someone knowing the artifacts. And how is that? How can anyone simply walk into an organization and within just a few interactions know the culture without being able to articulate why? Before we define culture for the purpose of the blueprint, let's take a look at how Wikipedia defines it. Culture, from Latin, cultura, literally, cultivation, is a term that has many different interrelated meanings. However, the word culture is most commonly used in three basic senses. Excellence of taste in fine arts and humanities, also known as high culture. An integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior that depends upon the capacity for symbolic thought and social learning. The set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterizes an institution, organization, or group. Once you've read the entire book, I recommend coming back to this page and rereading these definitions. They are far more applicable than you can imagine. Culture itself can be seen as a process, starting from the basic desire to create, which is expressed by the symbols or language we use to communicate, and finally by the tools that actively and consciously reflect it. Culture, like a biology lab culture, is simply an environment to grow something. For the purpose of moving forward, let's create a very simple definition that will keep us focused on why we are discussing this in the first place. The simple idea behind culture. Try on this definition. Culture is a feeling. That's all it is. When you strip away all the language, interactions, and signs, you are simply left with a feeling, one that's created by the people there. Yet it takes conversation to articulate it but what you're left with is a feeling. The easiest way to get in touch with that feeling is to have a stranger come into a culture and interact for a day, asking questions and observing. That person will be able to describe to you the feeling they have upon exiting. I learned this by speaking to a producer for the Harvard Business Review video publication. At the end of his three days, he sat me down and said, I have visited the best companies in the world, and I've met with many heads of state, and I can tell you, I've never felt more embraced and welcomed than I have here at Zappos. With a tear in his eye, he added, I want to bring my family back next time so they can experience this. So if culture is a feeling, what is it that creates feelings? The next level up from this, we'll be getting more into the model as we go through the book, is simply experiences that create these emotions. It is the experience that lasts. All information, strategy, planning, it's all forgotten. Think about it this way. Think of every single piece of information you learned in college. How much can you come up with? Now think of your memorable experiences, the events, 
parties, late night conversations, sports games. We could go on and on because experience makes the impact, not information. So as you listen to this book, together we are creating an experience right now. I've done my best to weave together words, models, structures, and examples so that you have a powerful experience that you can use as a reference point in developing your culture. What you may find surprising is that you may not remember most or any of the information. True learning and growth will happen as the result of taking the information and putting it into practice. You will gain priceless wisdom through your own experience. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. You have a key decision to make right now at this very moment. How will you use this reading to create an optimal experience for yourself? Will you do what most people do? Most people let a book lie on their desk like a paperweight. Only pick up a book when they have a few spare moments. Read a couple of chapters, then stop when the content starts to challenge them. Read while constantly checking email and texting. Read without a pen or a notebook to take down key points to remember. Effective readers and action-oriented leaders cut out all interruptions by phone and email so that they can focus. Set a calendar date to create the time and space. Write their key questions in the front of the book to focus their mind on getting the most value. Keep a notebook handy so they can centralize their ideas as they read. Write out their own index in the back of the book based on key ideas that they can easily reference later. Pick a key area of improvement that they will apply this to and plan that project as they go. Commit to teaching it to another person after reading it so that they understand it at a deeper level. Again, it's up to you to co-create this optimal experience with the Culture Blueprint. Pick one or two for your focus. Old model versus new model of management culture. Because most of modern business consists of communication, we can see the models of culture within language itself. Language shows how we got to where we are today. The old model of business is based on command control hierarchies. To see the old model in business, all we have to do is take a look at the language. As you hear the words below, also notice where we derive our terms from, plus the evolutionary pattern. Strategy, recruit, train, fire, execute, target, market, engage, employ, deploy, all military terms. Whereas coach, team, player, partner, sports terms. The predominant language of management is military-based. The war analogies have created a feeling of fear within organizations. This is because in war, land and natural resources are valued above any single life. But that's changing. People are becoming more and more important. So in the new model, relationships matter most because the previous needs have become cheap and commoditized. Now the edge comes in people, relationships, innovation, and information. All are connected. In fact, I would venture to say that even though I do not know you personally, we actually do the same tasks every day. Do you read and write emails? Do you call people? Do you search for information on Google? Do you develop presentations and plan out projects? I could go on. As I mentioned, almost all of business today has become communications. Therefore, 
we need a new set of analogies that are based on communications and metaphors. The most relevant metaphors involve communications, languages, codes, information, sender-receiver, transmissions, etc. Another set of related metaphors uses computer networks. Computer-based terms include network, programming, code, architect, design, host, affiliate, hub, beta, hack, install, download. The old management language actually mirrors the older computer language. Do you remember mainframes and dumb terminals? All commands would come from a centralized unit. Traditional hierarchies reflect that, and they can't adapt quickly enough to keep up with the rate of change. But now, it's a true network. It's all peer-to-peer. -peer. Here are a few examples of where we are already seeing this play out. Network. As Facebook, an international community four times as big as the population of the United States, has demonstrated, a social network has become one of the world's most valuable companies. Code. Coders or programmers have become one of the most sought-after hires globally. This is because everything in our world is becoming an interface, a site, or an app. Media theorists such as Douglas Rushkoff have stated that those who don't understand programming will be left behind because our entire world is now based on code. Design. Apple, the world's most valuable company, has shown that design can trump all other factors. In the words of Steve Jobs, Quote, people think it's this veneer, that the designers are handed this box and told, make it look good. That's not what we think design is. It's not just what it looks like and what it feels like. Design is how it works. End quote. As culture designers, we are creating architecture to provide the best possible environment for people to thrive. Hack. There is an emerging group of authors called life hackers, such as Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Workweek. They are people who have figured out how something in life works, for example, sleep, and how to use minimal effort to change it for maximum gain. Hacking goes beyond programming when people realize that, like a computer network, all of life is made up of complex systems. And if we know the vulnerable points where a small action can have a big impact, then we can hack those systems. Knowing how culture works as a system is one of the seven key principles of culture which you are about to learn. The seven principles of culture. One, culture is co-created. If you think culture is a one-person job, or you think you can have a chief culture officer, if you think you can delegate culture or just get it done, like a project or a task on your to-do list, think again. Culture can never be created. It can only be co-created. No one person is responsible for creating culture. Do you know why? Because culture exists whether you create it or not. The people around you are always creating the feeling. Think about any event, party, class, or convention. It's always the attendees, plural, who create the feeling. So the idea of creating culture on your own is like the idea of creating energy. It can't be done, but it can be co-created. If people consciously create their reality together, it will produce a visible change. I remember taking my first class at Zappos to learn about culture. Rather than telling us about the culture as we sat there and listened, the instructor first asked us, what do you think the word culture means? And we discussed it. Then the instructor asked, 
What do you think Zappos culture is? And again, we discussed it. The class content itself was co-created. Next, rather than just learn about Zappos culture and go home, we formed teams and created projects to further develop the company's culture, and we executed them within a month. Side note. Just in that short story, did you hear the values that were embedded within the experience? Can you recognize a culture that values open-mindedness, learning, and execution? Values are not posters on a wall. Values are experienced every day, whether you state them or not. Keep this in mind. People value that to which they contribute. Say that to yourself a few times, and think about it. Imagine a dinner party where you and a group cooked together and took care of all the arrangements. I would bet you enjoyed that meal a lot more than if you had just shown up and everything had been prepared for you. Now think about any initiative regarding people, a class you want to teach, a project you want to start, a new interview process you want to use, a new policy to roll out. How can it be co-created? If you can take that approach and roll with it, go for it. If you want more of a framework, gather a group and try this. One, take a step back and clearly define what you're doing and why. Two, ask everyone what this initiative would ideally feel like on an emotional level. Three, ask for their ideas on what can be done to create that experience. Let them speak more than you do. Four, narrow down the ideas to the ones with the highest amount of leverage. Leverage equals high ratio of output to the amount of energy put into it. Five, ask who is passionate about which idea. Then ask for the passionate people to commit a next action step in front of their peers. Once you've co-created the culture, what strengthens it is sharing it. Two, share what you want to keep. Sometimes people ask us at Zappos, why are you sharing your culture? That's your competitive edge. Yes, that is true. But culture is people, and people can't be copied. So there's no reason to fear sharing it. In fact, the opposite is true. The more culture is shared, the stronger it becomes. As of this writing, 25,000 people will come through the Zappos offices this year to simply watch people work. If anything, this sounds like a major distraction, right? So how can this make culture stronger? Sharing inspires integrity and accountability. When you share your culture, it's now on display. You can't hide it in the back of the room. So it becomes patently obvious whether or not you as an organization are living your own values. We tend to hold ourselves accountable when our work is on display. So why not be on display all the time? Sharing inspires appreciation. As humans, we can take the greatest of pleasures for granted if we experience it every day. So what keeps things new? When visitors see other people watching them with wide open eyes, wishing they could work there, then employees suddenly feel grateful because they remember that the rest of the world is not like this. Sharing inspires a culture of giving. When more and more people ask about your culture or anything else about your business, it's an opportunity to give. It's an opportunity to enlighten. By making this activity a habit, it goes on throughout the organization. People become used to giving and sharing. And what people become used to becomes the way things are done around here. Other companies, such as Netflix, HubSpot, and Spotify, are sharing their culture and management principles and techniques. 
For links to these, go to www.cultureblueprint.com resources. When you share the culture, you are actually providing the energy to keep it going because... Three, culture feeds on culture. What do you think it takes to perpetuate a strong culture? Oddly enough, it's culture itself. What? How does that even make sense? Think about it this way. Follow this logic. Culture is a feeling created by people. People come together through relationships. Relationships are built through communication. Communication is made up of stories. Even commands have a story behind them. Stories are made of language. Thus, everyday language creates the feeling. So ultimately, it's stories and language that are powering culture. The more you develop the language in the stories, the more you strengthen the culture. Let's look at a few real-world examples so that this makes sense. Imagine you have an event at work. People are having a great time. They love it. They're bonding. And you think about how great a team you have. But how do you make it last? Facebook has practically created a billion-person nation-state on this principle. You preserve it and share it. So that means pictures, videos, quotes, and time to talk about it the next day. You capture the moment and bottle the magic, so you can share it, relive it, and use it to inspire the next event that outdoes the previous one. You can start right away. All it takes is the video app on your smartphone. One of my favorite moments as a manager was interviewing a new candidate for the team. And the candidate asked, why do you all like working here? Then I absolutely loved hearing each team member describe what was so amazing about our team and our culture. Do you have moments like these? What if you proactively built them into your rituals? Ask yourself, one, how can we start preserving the good times and our history? Two, who is passionate about this? Three, who loves video and photography? Four, how can we take time to share memories and talk about why we love working here? When you see how culture feeds itself in a never-ending loop, you start to see how it is actually composed of systems. So next, let's take a look at what a system actually is. Because if we understand systems, we understand culture. Four, culture is composed of systems. Warning. We're about to geek out. A system is an interconnected set of elements that is coherently organized in a way that achieves something. We tend to focus on the elements of any system to try to improve it, but it is actually the interconnections or the relationships that define the outcomes of a system. In other words, it's what's invisible. For example, if you walked into Zappos, you would see every kind of personality and you would think that there was no way these people could get along. However, it was the interconnectedness that created the bond. There are three parts to any system. Elements, interconnections, and purposes. Elements are what are visible. Interconnections can't be seen. And here's the most interesting part. The purpose of a system is not deduced from stated goals. The purpose is deduced from the behavior of the system itself. That means that it is not strategy that is guiding the system. The behavior of the system itself is guiding it. Thus the famous quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. The behavior is driven by the interconnections. And if those change, 
the entire system changes. Let's use a basic example to make the point. Imagine an American football game and all of its elements, players, field, ball, etc. Now, keep all of those elements, but change the rules of the game, which is the invisible part that prescribes how the elements interact. Change the rules of the game to those of soccer. The new game would be completely different, even though all the same elements are present. We changed the rules of interconnection. Because everything is interconnected, there is no such thing as a separate system. We can work on a subsystem, but changing one system will affect the others. So let's say you want to change a policy across the company. That means your change will be affecting many subsystems. The most effective way to deal with the resistance of these subsystems is to find a way to align their goals and show how the policy change will add a new dynamic that will allow those subsystems to grow. The limiting factor in any system is the highest leverage point for growth. In other words, the biggest source of frustration provides the biggest opportunity. See section, this is frustrating. Systems with similar feedback structures produce similar behavior dynamics, even though the systems appear completely different. That's why this model of culture works in so many different kinds of businesses. The one system that is present in every culture, regardless of group size, nationality, business, etc., is the one everyone knows about, but no one really knows how it works on a theoretical level. It's called a game. Five, culture is a game. Have you ever found yourself frustrated with people who don't seem to put in enough effort? Maybe they used to, but now they've stopped. Or maybe they exert themselves half the time, but seem to be completely unproductive otherwise. It's easy to put the entire responsibility on employees. It's also a trap to blame ourselves as managers for not being inspirational enough. But consider another option. The problem is a poorly defined game. First, let's define a game, which is well articulated in Jane McGonigal's book, Reality is Broken. Games may or may not be fun, but they all have this in common. One, a goal. Two, a rule set. Three, a way to keep score or receive feedback. Four, opt-in play with no compulsion by others to play. McGonagall claims that these properties directly stimulate the happiness centers of the brain, in part because this structure encourages blissful productivity, leading to happy brain chemical production. On a very basic level, you can see this at Zappos as a whole. One, a goal. Become the best service company in the world. Two, a rule set. The Zappos family core values. Three, feedback. Financial performance. Happiness scores. Net promoter score. Four, opt-in. Pay people to quit the company to make sure employment is completely opt-in. If you want to know whether you are in a healthy culture or an unhealthy culture, all you have to do is determine if there's a strong game at play. Healthy game and culture. Clear goal. Everyone knows the goal, and they are all aligned for the same purpose. Unhealthy culture. Fuzzy goal. Some understand the goal, others don't. Some are not even aware. Healthy culture. Clear rules. Everyone knows the rules, so everyone can play fairly. 
Core values often serve as rules of behavior. Unhealthy culture. Vague rules. Rules are not obvious or they're constantly changing. No core values have been established and communicated. Healthy culture. Accessible feedback. Visual aids are used so everyone knows the score. Feedback is structured so the people know where they stand. Unhealthy culture. No feedback. No institutionalized way to track progress or get slash offer feedback. Healthy culture. Opt-in. Projects and meetings are voluntary, and agreements are made clear before beginning. Unhealthy culture. Mandatory slash forced. Projects and meetings are mandatory, thus forcing people to do things they are not passionate about, thus creating a major energy drain. You can see a more detailed example of a game in the Induct and Initiate section. Agreement is the linchpin in culture. I can often diagnose the problem with a culture when it comes to their level of opt-in, and the explicit format is in agreements. Leaders often assume they are getting agreement, but unless you have explicit confirmation, then there is only the illusion of agreement. Let's give a real-world example. Restaurants need to know about reservation cancellations because holding an open table that will not be filled can cost them money. Typically, a confirmation would sound like this. We have you down for 4 at 7.30. Please give us a call if anything changes. This, in actuality, is a demand. There is no explicit agreement. However, when restaurants change their language to We have you down for 4 at 7.30. Would you please call us if anything changes? Pause. They wait for an answer. The patron then says, yes. And then they are far more likely to call because they have given their agreement. The same thing is happening in organizations every time someone is assigned work. Without explicit agreement, there is no clear commitment. Directly asking the question is the way to test for willingness. And if there is resistance, then it begs further questioning. Would they feel guilty to say no? Do they not have the resources? Is there a sacrifice they would need to make? Get curious. Now let's go back to the game. Think about those situations in which you were frustrated with those unproductive employees. Did you create a clear, measurable goal? Did you establish the rules for creating it? Did you have a clear rule in your own management game for what was unacceptable versus what could be coached? Did you receive an express commitment or did you assume that they opted in? And did you give them regular feedback as they went through the process so that they knew if they were on track? Like any good sports game, the end result is not just the win, but an epic story that gets passed down from generation to generation. And that's why... 6. Your story is currency. If you want people on your team to value customer service, the least effective way to do this is to tell them that customer service is important. That seems counterintuitive, right? Well, think about it this way. You're sitting in a bar with a friend, and a guy comes up to you and says, Hey, my name is Joe, and I'm a really cool guy. Let me tell you about all the reasons I'm really cool. How likely are you, A, to believe him, and B, to care? The same thing happens when managers call a meeting and start telling people what they should value. Many people do not like being told what to do, but stories are a way to bypass this process. Stories are values-embedded narratives in which people can locate themselves and thus decide for themselves. 
If I tell you a story about my father, you will inevitably start thinking about your father. As I talk about my values in the form of a story, then you will resonate with the values we share. And that's why it's important to hire by the values, because you can't change a person. Odds are that the movies and stories that you like the most have a piece of you in them. So in the above scenario, if I were to tell you stories about my life, then I'm not telling you what to think. I'm simply sharing what's important and meaningful to me in a way you can understand it. And then it is up to you to decide if I'm a cool guy. Stories are fantastic as a medium because if they are constructed correctly and it's the right audience, then they are an entertaining way to build a shared history. When we think about America, we know the story behind it. Take any major religion, there is a story behind it. The ideas and philosophies are embedded within, but it's the stories that we remember, and that makes it easy to pass on to future generations. A great brand is a story that never stops unfolding. For more on the intersection of story and brand, see www.getstoried.com. Like a currency, a story is a medium that contains value. In this case, the value is actually the story's values. It can be transmitted and exchanged without any cost beyond the time it takes to tell it. That's why it's easier to share a story about great customer service and how it changed an employee's own life rather than simply giving a directive that emphasizes how service is important. Next, you will learn the most important currency that allows all other culture currencies to flow freely. 7. The Secret to Innovation Everyone wants innovation, but you actually may not be ready for a culture of innovation. What do you think it is that drives innovation? Let's bring it to the level of culture. What is the difference between an employee who takes initiative and makes ideas happen versus one who does not do anything? Yes, those with initiative are drivers, but the answer is not to simply hire drivers who will act independently. That's like an all-star team, which is inferior to a team of seasoned players who can successfully intuit each other's every move and act as a group. The reason why people don't take action is one word. Fear. This may seem obvious, but you may not realize how deep it goes. It may be hard to imagine, but this is the thought chain that goes through an employee's mind. If I take this action, I might step on someone's toes, or I might get it wrong. If I get it wrong, I could hurt the company. If I hurt the company, I might lose my job. If I lose my job, I might not get work for another six months. If I don't get paid, I won't make my mortgage. I'll have to move out. I won't be able to pay for my kid's school. My relationship with my spouse would deteriorate as well. You know what? I'm just going to do what's in my job description instead. This is going on in almost every company, even the best. What most people don't realize is that innovation is driven over a steady road called safety. Yes, it is safety that underlies every culture of innovation. So innovation is not about how to run brainstorming meetings, whiteboards, and offsites. The answer is to create a culture of safety. So how do you do that? There's one way to find out. When is the last time you celebrated, not just tolerated, a failure? When did you announce to the company, Jonathan took a great idea and put it into action? He had a strong rationale for it. Unfortunately, it resulted in a loss of customers, but we learned a great lesson in this. Thank you, Jonathan. Is it on display that it is okay to fail? Note, as with all complex adaptive systems, there is a latency effect here. People will not feel safe at first. It takes time to develop, but stick to it. 
to show consistency.